0: in um, this week we are in parashah bo which means go or come um, same word can mean both things in Hebrew now seven of the ten plagues have already occurred and this week's Torah portion tells us it's the eighth the ninth and the tenth so um, let's go look there Cheryl had us there it's Shemot chapter 10 on page 60. We're going to start right on verse 1. I'm going to read that again. So that's Shemot, or Exodus 10, on page 60. We're going to jump right in. It says, Adonai said to Moshe, Go to Pharaoh, for I have made him and his servants hard-hearted so that I can demonstrate these signs of mine among them, so that you can tell your son and grandson about what I did to Egypt and about my signs that I demonstrated among them, and so that you will know, all know, that I am Adonai. So right off the bat here, um, Adonai is telling us that what is to come will be bigger than what was before. The other plagues were bad, but these are the ones that you're going to talk about. You're going to tell your son and your grandson about what I did to Egypt and the sign that I demonstrated among them. So. This one is going to get people talking. And here we are, 3,000, 4,000 years later, and we are talking about them. So that's a little bit of prophecy that is coming true. These final plagues will break Egypt, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. The locusts will destroy the last of the food in Egypt that the hail didn't get, even the trees This will obviously break them physically. The darkness will show the impotence of their primary god, the sun god, Ra, and this will break them spiritually. This Ra was the greatest god in the Egyptian pantheon. He was the sun god. The name of Pharaoh that's often associated with the Exodus is Ramesses II. Now, Ramesses, the name has a meaning. Meses means son of, and Ra is obviously Ra. So Rameses is the son of Ra. The Egyptian people believed that Ra ruled, the Ra and the sun ruled all the other gods in the whole world by its extension. Now the human ruler, Pharaoh, he was the son of the sun god, and he was a semi-divine being. Um, This was very common in the ancient world. Uh, Kings were often given godlike status, uh, certainly the emperors of Rome were, and so Pharaoh was a semi-divine being, the child of the sun god Ra, and so the darkness plague destroyed this, this idea that showed God's supremacy over any of that. And of course, the death of the firstborn will be the execution of Adonai's justice, And with the death of any child, this will break them emotionally. These events, these are events that will be talked about and remembered for years and years and years. Adonai could have chosen to free his people in a multitude of ways. He could have simply moved them out. He could have given them great military might beyond what a ragtag group of slaves would have. I mean, the 300 men in the army of Gideon destroyed the entire opposing army. He could have done a lot of different things, but he didn't. He used the 10 plagues and he spaced them out over a period of time. Most rabbis will say it was about a year that the plagues actually took place. So, All 10 of these plagues, turning the Nile to blood, a plague of frogs, lice, flies or wild beasts, pestilence of the livestock, boils, hail and fire, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. The entirety of these plagues was meant to send a message, not simply free the people, but it was to send a message to the Egyptians and by extension to the rest of the world. So, by looking at these plagues a little more in depth, we're going to see what the Torah is trying to tell us. Now, there are several themes that we're going to pull out today, and they'll become apparent as we go through studying these 10 plagues. So, a couple of themes that I'm going to try to hit on is the execution of God's perfect justice. And I say perfect justice because when we talk about it, you'll see what I mean. Um, it's, it really is fitting and just and perfect. Um, There's a theme of the singular God and his supremacy over all aspects of creation. And there's even a theme of repentance in Pharaoh's response to the plagues. Now, of course, Pharaoh never does repent, but there's a lesson to be learned nonetheless in his hard-heartedness about the nature of repentance, So to examine these themes, we're going to break the plagues up into groups. So each of of these themes has a group of plagues that are associated with it that kind of tell us something about that. So the first one we're going to look at is God's perfect justice. And I keep hitting on that perfect justice because it's important. So it's easy for us to say that the plagues were God's judgments against the Egyptians. I mean, even our little kids downstairs, they know that, obviously. The plagues were judgments. But if we look at some of these plagues, we can see just how perfect and fitting the punishments really were. And we can learn a little bit about the nature of God through them. So there's a saying of our master Yeshua that sums up this idea that I'm getting at, this idea of just and equal, perfect justice and equal punishment. It's found in Matthew chapter 7. Yeshua says, For with the same judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, of course, Yeshua is issuing a general warning against judging others at all. But he's also saying that what you do will be turned back on you. Now, there are many, many, many examples of this in Scripture. In the book of Esther, chapter 7, uh, once the plan of the plans of the evil Haman have been discovered, uh, the Scripture says, One of the eunuchs attending the king said, There is a gallows 50 cubits high at Haman's house. He had built it for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. Hang him on it, declared the king. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the fury of the king subsided. So Haman had planned something. He had his instrument of destruction ready, and it was turned back on him. The same thing happens in Uriah who or uh, Jeremiah chapter 34. The people disregarded Adonai's commandment to free the slaves after the Shemitah year. So Adonai says to them, You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom, each man, for his brother and for his neighbor. So now I proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord, freedom to fall by the sword. And that's what happened. Jerusalem fell by the sword of the Babylonians, and they were all carried off to slavery in Babylon. In Daniel chapter 6, the men who had caused him, who had kind of entrapped him to uh, get in trouble and had caused him to be thrown into the lion's den were themselves thrown into the lion's den. So this happens over and over and over throughout Scripture. The, 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 the tool that you prepare for evil is eventually turned back on you. So with this concept in mind... Let's look at how the plagues executed this just and perfect punishment against the Egyptians. So let's look at Shemot or Exodus chapter 2 on page 60. So that's Shemot or Exodus 2 on page 60. We're going to be starting on verse 15. So these are the crimes, these are two of the crimes. Or one of the crimes. This moreover, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was called Shifra and the other Puah. When you attend to the Hebrew women and see them giving birth, he said, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. However, the midwives were God-fearing women, so they didn't do as the king of Egypt ordered, but let the boys live. The king of Egypt summoned the midwives and demanded of them, Why have you not done this and let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, It's because the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They go into labor and give birth before the midwife arrives. Therefore, God prospered the midwives, and because the midwives feared God, he made them founders of families. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every boy that is born, throw in the river but let all the girls live. So Pharaoh's crime is obvious. He's trying to kill Hebrew baby boys. What's important for our study right now is how he did it. First, he tried through the midwives, and then he succeeded through throwing the babies into the Nile River and drowning them. Now, the justice for this crime is carried out in the first and the second plagues specifically. Now, the first one, turning the Nile to blood, is pretty easy to figure out. You probably are all with me on that. The Nile was the source of life for Egypt. Its yearly flood provided the water and the nutrients necessary for farming. Pharaoh turned this symbol of life into death for the Hebrews, and God, in turn, does the same for the Egyptians. The Nile was worshipped And it was personified by an Egyptian god called Hapi. Now, Hapi was given the title Lord of the Fish. Um, In inscriptions or depictions of Hapi, uh, he was depicted with large drooping breasts and a large stomach as if pregnant. This was to represent fertility. So apparently even... In Egyptian times, there was some confusion about male and female. So, Hopi was a man, but he was depicted with drooping breasts and a large, pregnant stomach. So, if we look at Shemot 5, it says this is this is when they this is uh, Moses and Aaron turning the blood, the Nile to blood said he raised his staff in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants struck the water in the river and all the water in the river was turned into blood the fish in the river died and the river stank so badly that the Egyptians couldn't drink its water there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt so it's interesting that scripture calls out the fish dying that would seem to be obvious fish can't live in blood but it's doing this because Adonai is demonstrating his mastery over this so-called lord of the fish, Hepi. This god of fertility whose river was used to murder newborn babies. To an Egyptian, this symbolism, this wouldn't have been lost on them and this, was, this would have been profound. So how does the second plague the plague of frogs relate to the killing of the Hebrew babies? And specifically, how does it symbolize how is it symbolized by the midwives? How does it relate? How do frogs relate to midwives? So for this answer, we need to know a little bit more about the Egyptian pantheon of gods. The plague of frogs would have been associated with the Egyptian god Hekt. This was a goddess who was believed to attend births as a midwife and who is depicted as a woman with the head of a frog. So here we have Adonai executing his perfect justice. The Egyptians took things meant for blessing and used them for an unspeakable crime, the life-giving Nile and the life-giving midwives. Adonai took these things, or the symbols of them, or the gods associated with them, and turned them back on them. Proverbs 26, 27 says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on the one who starts it rolling. This is an important lesson for us all. And even in the New Covenant, we see this pattern remain consistent. If we look at Yochanan or John 18, Yeshua is brought before Pilate. Um, he's been charged with the crime of blasphemy, and the temple leaderships brings him before Pilate. So Pilate went outside to them and said, "What charges are you bringing against this man?" They answered, "If we hadn't done something wrong, if he hadn't done something wrong, we wouldn't have brought him to you." Pilate said to them, "You take him and judge him according to your own laws." The Judeans replied, we don't have the legal power to put anyone to death. So they wanted to kill Yeshua, but they couldn't do it. So they used the Romans as the tool to execute Yeshua. And 40 years later, that comes back on them. After his his death, that tool would come back on them. Uh, during the uprising of the Zealots, the Roman army would breach the walls of Jerusalem, destroy the temple, kill thousands of people, and scatter them all to the Diaspora. That tool that they used would come back to them. He who starts the stone rolling will have it roll back on him. So, that's kind of... That's how the killing of the infants is related to the first two plagues. But there was also uh, slavery. The uh, Hebrew people were, the Israelites were viciously enslaved. So if we go back to Shemot chapter 1, verse 8, on page 60, we're going to look at that a second. So if we go to Shemot 1, verse 8, on page 60... So this is right in the beginning of our parasha. Oh, no, it's the last parasha. Sorry. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. He knew nothing about Yosef, but said to his people, Look, the descendants of Israel have become a people too numerous and powerful for us. come. Let us use wisdom in dealing with them. Otherwise, they'll continue to multiply, and in the event of war, they might ally themselves with our enemies, fight against us, and leave the land altogether. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built for Pharaoh the storage cities of Ptom and Ramesses. What's noticeable here is even after all this time, Pharaoh did not consider them his countrymen they were still outsiders, they were still threatening. Although they had been invited to live there by a previous Pharaoh, they were still considered aliens in their adoptive homeland, a place they had been there for hundreds of years. They were afflicted. The Egyptians could beat and even kill Hebrews with total impunity. They were enslaved. The pharaoh built great wealth on the backs of Hebrew slaves. If we look at just the first nine plagues and break them up into three groups, we're going to see how these three groupings of plagues punish the people for these three sins. uh, Treating them as aliens, afflicting them, and uh, gaining wealth off them. Rabbi Shlomo Wiskin writes, Sin is punished in kind, even if it may take a few generations. Hence, the first three plagues made the Egyptians feel like strangers in their own homeland. The bloodied Nile preventing them from drinking water. The outbreak of frogs preventing them from sleeping or eating comfortably. The lice causing them to constantly scratch themselves. The next three, wild animals, illness, and boils, harm their possessions and property. And the last three, hail, locusts, and darkness, wrought havoc upon the atmosphere in which they lived, culminating in the killing of the firstborn. This was just punishment for the fact that the Hebrews were made to feel like despicable strangers in Egypt, were forced to physically suffer and even die by cruel taskmasters, and were prevented from enjoying the free air and open spaces, um, theaters and marketplaces of Egypt. Indeed, God's firstborn of Israel were coerced to endure alienation, affliction, and enslavement. So God is using these specific plagues to punish the Egyptians in appropriate ways. Now, in contrast, Adonai ordered his people to treat the stranger with respect In Vaikor, Leviticus 19, scripture says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat a stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This theme of justice and the types of just punishment for sins I think is a little little more readily apparent within the symbolism of the plagues. So God is using the plagues specifically to punish the Egyptians in very specific ways for what they did. It's not random. And of course, the plagues also represent God's absolute supremacy over everything. If you recall back a few weeks ago, uh, my last teaching, when Moses asked God his name, God says, I am who I am. And this, is a, this means I'm everything. All existence, time, space, matter, spiritual and physical were created by me, not me, but by God, and continuously sustained by me. Pharaoh was caught up in the splendor of Egypt, how great and how powerful it was. And it was at the time, Egypt was the only world superpower. He couldn't recognize that all the grandeur of Egypt was nothing compared to who he was dealing with. Isaiah 29, 16 says, how you turn things upside down. Is the potter not better than the clay? Does something made say of its maker, he didn't make me? Does the product say of its producer, he has no discernment? Think of the nature of the plagues. Uh, they all involved the natural world. God was trying to send Pharaoh a message that he would understand. He did this by turning against the Egyptians the very things that they worshipped. They worshipped the Nile River. It became blood. They worshipped beetles or scarabs. They got lice and locusts. They worshipped frogs and they found them in their beds. They worshipped a calf god, and their livestock were afflicted with illness. They worshipped the weather, and they had their crops destroyed by hail. Their principal god, Ra, was the god of the sun, and they got darkness. Adonai was decisively demonstrating his complete control over the natural world and all of Egypt's so-called gods. So the question is, Why didn't Pharaoh get the message? One of the most confusing things about the last couple of parashahs, including this one, is the seemingly suicidal stubbornness of Pharaoh. His country is falling apart around him yet he will still not submit to God's authority. By this point... Uh, in the narrative, his magicians and all his uh, associates and advisors had conceded their defeat. If we look to Shemote 8, chapter 8, on page 67, we'll see that. We'll see them giving up, but not Pharaoh. So it's Shemote 8, on page 67, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 16. Adonai said to Moshe, say to Aharon, reach out with your staff and strike the dust on the ground. It will become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. They did it. Aharon reached out his hand with his staff and struck the dust on the ground. And there were lice on people and animals, and all the dust on the ground became lice throughout the whole land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to produce lice, but they couldn't. The relies on people and animals. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh was made hard-hearted so that he didn't listen to them, just as Adonai said what happened? Then we fast forward to this week's parasha, uh, Shemot chapter 10, verse 7. Pharaoh's servants said to him, how much longer must this fellow be a snare for us? Let the people go and worship Adonai their God. Don't you understand yet that Egypt is being destroyed? So the magicians, the servants, the advisors, they had all given up, but not Pharaoh. Why? So this is where we're going to look at the final theme of the plagues, and that is the theme of repentance, or more specifically, the cost of non-repentance. Now, true... God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. He said he would. But notice that the divine intervention only emerges with the sixth plague. If you look at the first five plagues, we find that Pharaoh himself is the one who is obstinate. This pattern is repeated over and over five times. Uh, Pharaoh became obstinate for the first plague. It's Shemot 7.22. He, Pharaoh, hardened his heart. That's the second plague, Shemot 8.11. Pharaoh remained obstinate, the third plague, Shemote 8.15. Pharaoh made himself obstinate, the fourth plague, Shemote 8.28. And Pharaoh remained obstinate again, the fifth plague, Shemote 9.8. Only when we reach the sixth plague do we rely, do we arrive at a new formulation. Now it was God who made Pharaoh obstinate. That's Shemot 9.12. This contrast is so sharp and the division so perfect, five on one side and five on the other, that it's clear the Torah is telling us something by this. The Midrash explains that Pharaoh had already been given five opportunities to repent, five opportunities to hear the voice of God demanding that his people shall be released from slavery. Each of these plagues is a direct message from God to Pharaoh with the unmistakable symbolism. And he still refused. God is now effectively saying, you stiffened your neck, you hardened your heart, now I'm going to do the same. I'm going to add stubbornness to your own inner stubbornness. Regardless of what happens now, Pharaoh must bear the punishment. Now, that does seem to cause a problem. This would seem to indicate that God is controlling Pharaoh, negating his free will. Now, this doesn't seem like the God we know. God doesn't control people and force them to do things. He may allow them to do terrible things, but he doesn't make them do it. But... There is a different and interesting erp- interpretation of this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart that doesn't include controlling his actions. Some rabbis will teach that the phrase hardened his heart could be interpreted to mean strengthened his heart or strengthened his resolve, as in removed fear. So I'll get to that in a second. I'll get, I'm going to get to that because a a lot of you probably have not heard this before, so this might be controversial. So this interpretation is supported by the use of this word that they use for hardened in other places in Scripture. The phrase God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Hebrew is hasak adonai et leb pero." So the word hardened is hazak. Now that word should sound familiar to us. You guys know where we hear that word all the time? When we finish a book of the Torah, what do we say? Hazak, hazak, Venet, chazek. Be strong, be strong, and let us be strengthened. It's the same word. The same word is also used in Joshua 1.9. We're all familiar with that, too. Be strong and have good courage, so don't be afraid or downhearted, because Adonai, your God, is with you wherever you go. In Hebrew, that's hazak. Be strong and of good courage and do not be afraid. So again, we have that hazak being used as be strong. So if we take this alternate interpretation of hazak as be strong instead of hardened, we get this idea of not Adonai hardening his heart, but Adonai strengthening his heart, as in removing fear from Pharaoh. Now, why does he do this? He removes the fear of the destruction around him from Pharaoh. This allows Pharaoh to continue doing what he thinks is right. He keeps enslaving the Hebrews because he's not afraid of what's around him and he really wants to keep, what's happening around him and he really wants to keep them enslaved. Now, eventually, the fear of the devastation happening around him would have forced Pharaoh to repent and allow the people to leave. Anybody, if they're beat long enough, will do whatever it takes to stop the beating. But in that case, Pharaoh would not have made a decision out of a newfound sense of morality. He wouldn't have made the decision because it was the right thing to do. He would have made the decision based on fear and self-preservation. So in the last five, when God strengthens his heart, he takes fear out of the equation and lets Pharaoh make his decision as he truly would intend. The lesson here is that repentance out of fear is not the kind of repentance that Adonai desires. Adonai desires repentance out of love for him and his ways. This is an important lesson for us today. And when I say us, I mean us in this room, us in this movement. Because we're doing something that is a little unique. We follow Torah. We follow the Moadim. But we need to ask ourselves, are we following the Torah because we fear punishment? Or are we following the Torah because we love God and his ways? This is an important lesson distinction. God wants us to do the right thing for the right reasons. God wanted Pharaoh to do the right thing for the right reasons. Pharaoh didn't. Pharaoh failed. But we have an opportunity to do things out of the love of God as opposed to uh, fear of punishment. Fear of God is a healthy thing, but we shouldn't be obedient to God, merely out of fear. We should be out of love. When we look at the Shema, you're to love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. It's to love your God, not fear your God, love your God. In Matthew 22:36, 36, uh, Yeshua echoes this idea. He's asked, what's the greatest mitzvot? And he, Yeshua responds, you are to love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the greatest and most important mitzvah. And the second is similar to it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. All the Torah and the prophets are dependent on these two mitzvot. So obedience to God should be out of love and not fear. That's the message that God was sending by trying by hardening Pharaoh's heart, by giving him opportun- opportunity for true repentance instead of repentance out of fear. So we're going to wrap up today. The 10 plagues, like all of the Torah, have multiple levels of meaning and interpretations. The Torah doesn't waste words, but nor does it embellish for its own sake. But it uses every word to the fullest extent to convey a deeper meaning and deeper truths of Adonai. I mean, you can look at it as 10 punishments for a stubborn ruler and a sinful nations, or you can look at the 10 plagues as a study into the very nature of God and the type of justice that he gives out. It's a commentary on his absolute supremacy and a warning about repentance. I've said it before. I love the Torah for this reason, because there's so much to it that we've only scratched the surface. After 12 years, we've only scratched this, I've only scratched the surface. We find new ways to mull it over, to interpret it, to think about it, to get closer to learning about God. So When you read the Torah and you read these events, there's two basic ways you can look at them. You can look at the Torah as a story of events long past, or you can look at the Torah as a study into the very nature of the Creator. Shabbat Shalom.